Hi, and welcome to episode three of Weimar Fashion Made in Germany. So there's a lot to cover today, and I'm just going to dive right into it. But before I do, I'd just like to let you know that the blog is down, and you can follow me on The Artificial Silk Femme on Instagram, and that's where I can provide you with the link to the movie we'll be discussing, as well as let you know when the show notes will be up and running again. So last week, we touched on street hawking, street style, and the concept of the neue Frau, or new woman. This week, we're going to talk a bit more about the neue Frau and her connection to the shop girl, another archetype. But we're primarily going to look at Weimar film and its unique relationship to fashion. We're also going to look at the rise of the Konfektionskomödie, or the fashion comedy, fashion farce. Think of it as a romantic comedy, but make it more about fashion. And we're also going to look at its close relationship with the Berlin designers and department stores. Lastly, we're going to review an existing Konfektionskomödie, the Pinkhaus Schuhpalast, or Pinkus Schuh Palace. To start us off, though, the famous German film theorist associated with the Frankfurt School, Siegfried Krakauer, remarked in his essays of the 20s that film was really, quote, the daydreams of society in which actual reality comes to the fore and its otherwise repressed wishes take on form, unquote. In his 1926 essay, The Cult of Distraction, he professed that film was predicated on distraction and consumption, and that replaced this contemplative fascination with highbrow art. Naturally, fashion was really the link that helped create that scintillating visual stimuli. The Weimar era film is iconic for many reasons. This era, because of its moodiness, because of its fanciful expression of excess, and especially because of its legendary filmmakers like Fritz Lang and P.W. Pabst. And for costume and fashion designers, this was really the first time their names were displayed in the credits. Interior design of many Weimar films reflected the trends, signs, and aesthetic of the Zeitgeist, namely Bauhaus and the New Objectivity. But Marcel Breuer's tubular steel furniture and clean, streamlined functionality was probably less likely to be seen in middle-class homes as in that of artists. Anne Willkommen, the costume designer for Metropolis from 1927, designed knee-length skirts and dresses that really aligned with the times, these boyish silhouettes of the era, this andro chic aesthetic we talked about last week. And for it had a very, Metropolis did have a very fashion-conscious wardrobe of its time because a lot of the pieces were made of rayon and charmeuse, which were more affordable and accessible to the everyday woman or shop girl. During the Weimar Republic, there was an average of 300 films per year, and one third of those were all were popular comedies. 
Today, we're going to talk about the not so well subgenre of that, which is the Confectionskomödie or fashion farce. Now, this was a major development from its beginning before World War One to the end of the 20s and into the 30s. Confection means garment and komödie is comedy or farce. The garment industry of Berlin was really known at this time for its thriving success as it employed a third or over a third of Berlin's workforce. Jewish-owned fashion companies like Valentin Mannheimer, David Leib-Levin, Rudolf Herzog, and Hermann Gerson developed a manufacturing process for men's and women's attire and opened department stores that would sell not only high-end collections, but also patterns and lower-priced pieces that were more affordable for the mass market. The Confectionskomödie was really a way for female viewers to feel connected to the fashions of the day and the garment industry, but also set and satisfy their own cravings. These movies usually included tips, suggestions, and showed the latest trends. And it really gave the audience this feeling that they were a part of this elite fashion show. In 1919, Elegante Welt interviewed the popular German film star Asta Nielsen, Nielsen. And she remarked that, quote, I read lately that a well-made film must at any moment have the effect of a good fashion magazine. This fact was quickly appreciated in countries where fashion is taken seriously. Today's actresses pay special attention to their aspect of film. Asta Nielsen was particularly successful in her own right, launching fashion trends throughout her film career. And she's really iconic for her really distinctive hairstyles, shawls, tight dresses, and hats in her films. And her unique look was called the Ala Asta Nielsen. But I really can't stress enough that the Konfektionskomödie was aspirational yet also attainable. And especially in times of deep economic crisis, fabric shortages, inflation, it was, you know, it was really a trusted source while also being an escape from it all. A 1921 Elegante Welt reported at the time that the price of fur had risen to a quarter of a million marks. So instead of trying to buy chinchilla, the average middle-class woman would just buy a movie ticket to escape into the world of, let's say, Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabus der Spieler, Dr. Mabus the Gambler. But the Confectionskomödie was predated by a new, another theater genre that emerged from 1890 to 1914, the fashion play. This was a musical fashion performance and really popular in European cities like London, Paris, Vienna, and Berlin. Similar to the Ausstattungsrevue, uh, a production number review inspired by the French Follies, designed to be visually stu stunning and had a grand number that served as a fashion tableau. 
These fashion pla plays and reviews would present dramatized fashion plates with a focus on the performative aspect of wearing clothes and the plots were generally secondary. And there were also dozens of burlesques, operettas, where Berlin's booming garment industry provided costumes and were proudly a part of the theme. These were considered lowbrow Konfektionssprossen, and like the many comedies, it had a similar archetypal characters to the Konfektionskomödie. You had the shrewd male shop assistant who caters to vain and often obnoxious clientele, the smart and driven female shop mannequin or model who aspires to become a fashion queen in the film. The Konfektionskomödie continued to be a big commercial success well into the 20s and 30s, as I had mentioned. And for designers and fashion houses, this really provided a great opportunity to promote their clothes. But we have to rewind here a little. Because the concept of the fashion show really started with Charles Frederick Worth and the opening of his salon in 1858, because he believed that dress in motion was a better way to market and sell each piece and really show the art and the glory and the artistry behind it. From then on, in the mid-19th century, European couture houses would show their collections in public spaces like horse races, beaches, and the theater, and so on. And we will get into that in our later episodes about the special Berlin, Paris, and Paul Poiret connection, which is quite fascinating. Now, one of the most notable films from the Konfektionskomödie was Der Fürst von Pappenheim, or The Masked Mannequin, which came out in 1927 and featured, I believe, Asta... No, did not. It featured um, Hans Hannelore, another actress. But this was um, a film about basically a princess who ran away, works incognito at a top fashion as a top fashion model in an illustrious Berlin fashion house. And the film features one of the longest and most opulent presentations of of fashion in Weimar cinema, cinema with all the costumes provided by Hermann Gazon. In the movie alone, there were 36 outfit changes. Now, sadly, there aren't that many existing examples of the Konfektionskomödie, but luckily I was able to find one of them um, from 1914, as I mentioned, the Pinkos Pinkos Schuhpalast. And this is also available on YouTube. It's about 44 minutes and it's a little hard to to read if you're not if you're not watching silent era films all the time, but it's definitely exciting in its own right. And I highly recommend you just you check it out. Unfortunately, it is obviously all in German. I, there aren't any subtitles, but it is I would say it's it's a gas. So, uh, like a few other Konfektionskomödies, it stars the popular comedian Ernst Lubitsch. And this was really part of a larger series called the Zali series. And it was about this young, cunning Berliner trying to make his way in life. It begins with Zali as a poor student who fails out of school. And luckily, he lands a job at a cheap shoe store. 
However, after flirting with the boss's daughter, who's also a shop girl, he gets fired. And again, the overall role of the shop girl is another common archetype that we need to delve into that was really prominent in the Confectionskomödie. And when you think of her, I want you to think of Doris from the Artificial Silk Girl from last week. She's really another example of a young, emancipated woman who in some way consumes fashion, works in it, and finds her own freedom, yet still within the restrictions of society. Now, this film features a, a few shop girls, but this is also from 1914, and she's really, this shop girl is really stepping stone from the, to the emancipated flapper that we'll see in the later 20s. Now back to Pinko's Schuhpalast. So Zali's failed attempt at the shoe store, he ends up moving to another higher-end shoe store, and here he's assisting a customer, and he decides to playfully tickle her feet. This gets him into trouble, but because of his excellent salesmanship, he's back in his boss's good graces. The woman whose feet he inappropriately touched is really decked out in a matching fur, hat, scarf, and muff. So really, no matter how short this scene is, because it really lasts for about 15 seconds, it's important for two reasons. First of all, you, you get a glimpse of him putting the shoe on her foot and a glimpse of this close-up of her leg, which is going to be a really major erogenous zone in, well into the teens. So you have that. And then you also have these short pics of her fur hat, fur glove, and this this opulent outfit that she's wearing. And I could imagine that seeing wealthy customers styled in sumptuous, expensive furs could provide a sense of escape. Also, it could provide a sense of schadenfreude hidden in there, especially when you consider what's going on with a lot of critique about class inequality, capitalism, and criticizing the bourgeoisie. In another scene, we see him promote the store by gifting a pair of shoes to a dancer during her performance, and this was all in an effort to help a slump in sales. He then invites the audience to his own live fashion show at the Pinkos Schuhpalast, and this is also important for a few reasons. First of all, at the time, fashion shows were, you know, beginning to take hold and fashion houses and designers were staging more theatrical events. At the Pinko Schuhpalast is this movie is really one of the few surviving artifacts we have of what a fashion show would have looked like and it uses a well-known Berlin footwear brand. And I really don't like to compare much. But I, I would challenge you to think of this movie as, an important, as important to the history of film and fashion, just like the 1939 hit The Women was, which presented the first Technicolor fashion show on the big screen. So I challenge you to look at that comparison. Secondly, the camera angled the camera is angled at the end of the runway and you see a full length shot of the outfits that come down the runway or the catwalk, 
with a final shot of all the models lined up on the stairs wearing these this this collection of shoes and the show features really a, a plethora so you have low heels with crisscross straps you have button-up ankle boots mary janes and then more embellished styles so from daytime classic to statement and evening you have a great lineup of shoes for every occasion and this movie probably offered a great marketing opportunity for Amelia Kobe, and it's presented as such as everything is perfectly merchandised. Thirdly, as I'd mentioned before, there are there is a lot of close-up on the ankle and leg throughout the movie, and this would eventually become the new sort of erogenous zone or focus of allure of for the, the, the female ideal and for the ideal body in fashion of the 20s. And of course, with every movie, there were, there were, it was the same message that was being repeated. And the general message of these films was really well outlined by a 20s fashion journalist, Olga Eisen, who said, number one, that shopping or consumption of luxury is better in moderation because an obsession with self-image could affect the romantic relationships and lead to debt. Two, fashion could be a great field and professional for the real realization of women. So this isn't really illustrated in the movie that I had outlined, but again, this second point goes all the way back to the Neue Frau and the shop girl and how they're all connected in this idea of emancipation through fashion, but also there has to be this give and take of this consumption of it in order to be emancipated, which is a really interesting dichotomy if you think about it. And that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this latest episode and I encapsulated everything succinctly yet with enough detail to really understand the importance of the Konfektionskomödie not only within the paradigm of Weimar film but its unique connection and important connection to Berlin fashion houses. Thank you so much, have a great weekend, and good night.